Welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Rising Podcast. I am your host, Lisa Hillier. And today I have Dr. Bill Schindler on the show with me. And Dr. Bill Schindler is an internationally known archaeologist, primitive technologist, and chef. He founded and directs the Eastern Shore Food Lab with a mission to preserve and revive ancestral dietary approaches to create a nourishing, ethical, and sustainable food system, and is an adjunct professor of archaeology at University College Dublin. He is a co-star of the National Geographic Channel series, The Great Human Race. Dr. Schindler has written features for the Washington Post, The Atlantic, and The London Times, among other publications. And this is such a great episode where we dive into ancestral ways of living and how we can create a sustainable food system here on earth by returning to those ancestral ways and whole food diets as opposed to what we have been programmed to eat for the past many, many, many years. And so I love this episode. There is so much wisdom in it and ways for you to return to optimal health. And if you feel called, please share this episode with anybody you feel it would benefit. Please like, follow, subscribe, write a review. It all helps so much to get these conversations out to a wider audience. And I have launched my apothecary, Wild Medicine Foraged Here from the abundance of the west coast of Canada that is all around me. So please do check that out in the show notes, the Rewilding Roses Apothecary. And there is a 25% discount for all my listeners just using Phoenix. And let's dive into the episode with Dr. Bill Schindler. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bill. And we're going to start with the question of what has been the journey that has brought you to the work that you're offering the world today? That's a fantastic question. Uh, the, the journey's been a long one. It's, it's obviously still continuing. Um, but several things. The, be, the beginning of the journey started with me trying to improve my own health. Um, I, I grew up as, as an overweight kid with an incredibly unhealthy relationship to food. And uh, it continued to impact me all through you know, middle school and, and at some level high school. And then it really, it really hit hard when I was in my 20s and early 30s. And I was just suffering from all sorts of metabolic disease. And, and really, like, like everybody else who's searching for those kinds of answers, led me through a journey of a whole bunch of different diets. Some of them made sense, some of them didn't, but I tried them all. And it wasn't until uh, I really used my my training and my background and my education in archaeology and anthropology that I really started to to find answers that made a different uh, made a difference in my life and impact in my life in a very positive way, and then uh, took that information and used it to nourish my own family, and it made a huge impact there. And more recently, uh, my wife and I we run uh, two entities. One is the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, which is a restaurant. And uh, the other is a nonprofit called the Eastern Shore Food Lab, where we continue to do archaeological and anthropological research, uh, looking at ancestral and traditional approaches to food. 
And those two entities synergistically work together uh, to create incredibly nourishing food for people in our community, but also we hold a whole bunch of educational classes online and in person for everything from sourdough bread to uh, in-house nose-to-tail butchering to cheese making, you know, that sort of thing. So this, this journey that started with me trying to find a way to make a difference in my own life transformed into making a difference into my family's life. And now I know our, our mission is to transform the health of, of everyone around us that we can possibly impact. Nice. I've read your book and you're wearing the Eat Like a Human t-shirt. And so it's like, eat like a human. And um, which seems like such a, you know, normal statement, like eat like a human, but we are eating so far from a human in our typical lives, if that makes any sense. You go into the supermarkets and the foods that you see that line the aisles are not what eating like a human actually is. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it it makes such, it makes such an impact on every aspect of our life. And and one of the things that's really problematic is that we have been not eating like a human for, for several generations now. Uh, Certainly it's, it's worse now than it was 10 or 20 years ago, but so much of, hold on, this is, this volume is, is crazy. So much of what we consume and have consumed for, for decades now is just sort of encultured into everything that we do that we just, you know, this just seems normal, you know, eating, eating sugary breakfast cereals, um, you know, th- those sorts of eating lean chicken bread, whatever it is, uh, has been a part of what we do and it's been normalized. But at the same time, the impacts of eating like that for a lifetime have also been normalized. And, and there's a real danger in that. So one of the things that you know, I'm 50 years old now, but I know so many people, and it was starting to impact me in my in my thirties and forties. Oh, you know, my knees are creaking when I go up the steps, or I wake up in the morning, and my feet are swollen, or I have these aches, and oh, that's just part of getting old. And we've normalized it, and we've normalized it because it's become normal. But that shouldn't be normal for a human. It's it's the result of decades or a lifetime of eating these foods that we've also normalized. Wild animals live incredible lives and then keel over dead. Whatever their lifespan is, you know, from from decades, you know, whatever whatever the lifespan is, they live these incredible lives and kill over dead, which is exactly how I want to live. And even though we pride ourselves because the modern medical system allows humans to stay alive to, you know, 90 years old or whatever, we don't live for 90 years. We live for the first half or two thirds of that. And then we're dying the last third of that because our quality of life for most of us, because of this lifetime of eating is completely tanked. We should be living incredible lives and then killing over dead like other animals. And that's what eating like a human can really, really do. And when I started to change my own diet and approach to food, all of those aches and pains that started in my thirties and progressed in my forties completely went away. And I am living now a completely pain-free, amazing life. I'm in the best health of my life now at 50, better than I was in my 20s. Amazing. That's amazing that you're feeling the best now. Um, I'm in my mid-40s and I'm like, oh, I'm getting those aches and pains and all that kind of stuff. So (laughs) this is inspiring for me to be like, that doesn't have to be the way that we live. So when you think back to when you were really unhealthy and now, what is the difference in your diet? What what was that big change? There's there's numerous things. Um, one of the and this is going to 
sort of sound esoteric and touchy feely and whatever to start it, but it's very, very important is one of the biggest things is I'm connected to my food. I'm connected to my food, how it's prepared, where it comes from, who grew it, you know, all, all of those things um, may sound like just kind of buzzwords in the modern health world today, but they're really incredibly important. In fact, the more connected to your food that you are, the less questions you have about it, the less, you know, we're the only species in the world that hires people to tell us how we should be eating, even though we're the least healthy species in the world, but we hire people to tell us how we should be eating. Most of the questions that we ask somebody else, we should be able to answer ourselves. And the, and the, 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 the more links you take out of your food chain and the shorter it gets, the more, the, the less questions you have because things just become apparent to you. So the first answer to that is one of the differences I'm connected to my food in a, in a very unique, powerful, visceral ways. Um, but sort of nuts and bolts things. Uh, number one is um, we eat a very, and, and this is not an, an anti-vegetarian or anti-vegan statement at all, because the reason people become vegetarians or vegans are to me highly, highly admirable, incredibly admirable. And in fact, most people are eating a vegetarian or vegan diet are eating a much better diet than the modern Western world. But I do wholly believe based on, on my anthropological research, my archaeological research and all the other work that we do, that an, a diet that includes um, nutrient-dense, bioavailable animal foods, such as high-quality meat, high-quality fat, high-quality offal, you know, organ meats, is uh, the basis of the most nutrient-dense you know, diet possible. And it is also the diet that helped support massive body and brain growth in our ancestors. So one thing is I've removed all industrial nut and seed oils out of my diet, and the only fats that we include, and we eat a very high-fat diet, but the only fats we include are from animal sources, and the ones we include from the plant world are coconut oil, olive oil, and avocado oil. And that's it. And if we're heating something, we're cooking with it, it's an animal fat um, solely, period. Uh, you know, stop. The other thing is when we do consume grains and we don't eat a lot of them, when we do, we realize that grains are inherently problematic for humans to digest and we require some sort of processing to make them as safe and as nourishing as they can possibly be. So if it's uh, things like wheat, we put it through a full long, wild sourdough fermentation process. If it's maize or corn, we put it through a pro an ancient process called nishtamalization. So we treat those grains in a way to help detoxify them and make their nutrients available to us. We, I, I understand now that uh, all, all plants have some sort of a defense mechanism in the form of toxins in them. Some of these toxins are not a very big deal for us to worry about. Some of them will kill us outright like the wrong kind of mushroom. But most of them just sort of sit in this in this uh, in, in our diets, and even though we might not feel an effect from them eating them, you know, the, in the next day feeling anything, after weeks and months and years of the consumption of some of these toxins, they begin to cause some sort of a problem. So, with that said, there are ways, and a lot of these are very ancestral and traditional. There's ways of detoxifying plants to make them safer for human consumption. Um, a, a great example, and this is a basic one, but a great example is three kidney beans. And I read about it in the book, three kidney beans, raw kidney beans would land you in the hospital. They are so incredibly toxic. But if we soak them and then we cook them, we detoxify them to the point where they're genuinely safe for, for human consumption. There still can be some problems, especially if you have underlying issues. But, but those beans go from something on day one that could land you in the hospital and make you very sick to the next day being something that can that has an opportunity to nourish you in a much safer way. Um, 
this is the way that we approach vegetables in, in, in all cases. Our, we have one of the most inefficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. And other animals are biologically equipped to eat the natural diets that they're designed for. Well, the difference with humans, and this is the focus of all of my work, is beginning literally three and a half million years ago, we started making tools that allowed us to out-eat our own digestive tract. Like literally, we could consume foods that were not biologically designed to consume, and through that technology, make them safer to eat and unlock their nutrients before we even put them in our mouths. And then we can eat these foods that we've already processed in some way and get massive, incredible nutrition from it. And then that supported the body and brain growth that literally created us as, as homo sapiens. So you can't separate the food itself from the technology required to make it as nourishing as it could possibly be, especially in the plant world. Um, we uh, utilize a complete nose to tail approach to animals. Um, we ferment most of our dairy, you know, all, all the, those are just some, some basics and, and all of them, you know, one of those things by itself maybe isn't going to change your life, but in concert, all of those things happening day after day, week after week, month after month, make all the difference in the world. I was vegan for six and a half years. And I think that might have, I mean, it contributed to a lot of mental health issues, mm -hmm. um, going into early menopause. Uh, and I think a lot of the aches and pains that I'm experiencing now. So I've gone the complete opposite, you know, <laughs> tallow on my face, bone <laughs> broth, organ meats. Um, and I am seeing a considerable shift in my health from that. And, and I'm passionate about talking about it because there is a program out there that really sells the vegan lifestyle. And there are a lot of dangers that go along with it. Massive dangers, but here's here's the problem with the way that, and this is why I sort of entered it, this conversation a little bit gently. I truly believe that somebody from our perspective on food and diet and health has more in common with a vegan than we do from somebody that's eating meat because... I'm an American and I can eat as much meat as I want to just because I can buy it at Costco for, you know, a dollar a pound. You know, that we have a lot of, you know, you and I, I don't want to speak for you, but it sounds like we're coming from a very same perspective. We want to eat an incredibly nourishing diet and nourish ourselves and our families and our community. We want to do so in the most ethical way possible, in the most sustainable way possible, the most connected way possible. And I would imagine that, that most people who are choosing a vegan lifestyle are doing it for very similar reasons. We have so much in common. We just apply it in, in, in a different way. And I really, in, in, instead of attacking one another, I really wish we had the opportunity to sit down and, and have a conversation. Um, there's a, a great example is uh, there are these two brothers. We, we just, my wife and I just came back uh, a couple of days ago. We ran a, a food history and a culture tour through Ireland. And there, in Dublin, there's a, a restaurant called The Happy Pair. And it's these two uh, vegan brothers who are wonderful human beings and they're, they're funny, they're comical and it's a happy pair like P-A-I-R and cause they're, you know, the pair of them and they really care about the community. They really care about their health. They really care about their food. And when they started the restaurant, they were hardcore, you know, don't even talk to me if, if you eat meat, but at some level they realized at some point they realized there's different ways of approaching eating animals, right? There's, there's the modern industrial food system, which, you know, I have no patience for either, 
But there's also people like us who are approaching this in a completely different way where we really have an eye towards not only nutrition, but ethics and standards and sustainability and all this. And now their, 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 uh, their approach has changed. They still don't choose to put meat in their restaurant, but their conversation, their understanding that there is this common ground, you know, is broadening. And, and I really wish that conversation could go there because it's, it's true. We, we, many of us, most of us really care at some level. We're just applying it in a different way. Unfortunately, I, I do think the, the vegan lifestyle is very detrimental to, to health for yeah, sure. Yeah. And women's reproductive systems 100%. really take a toll. I, I follow those guys on oh, you do? Instagram. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I love their their clips. And then I realized, oh, they're vegan. But it's like I love the merging of the two. And I love that it comes from the same space. Because when I became vegan, I was uh, training to be a health coach. And we would watch all these videos of the industrial food industry. And I was like, I was horrified. Like that is disgusting. Not the industrial food, the industrial meat yes. industry. And I was like, I can't eat that anymore. And so now bringing meat back into my diet, I order like an eighth of a bison from a farm that I completely trust. You know, I'm connected to it in that way. I joke that I'm homesteading without a homestead right now. <laughs> and, and, and for many of us, that's, that's what we have access to. I mean, that, that's, those are humongous steps in a direction that makes a big difference. And, and that's one reason why I don't, I don't think attacking from any, you know, these extremes on any one side are, are very, very useful because yeah. when, you know, the, when you're, when you sh cut the conversation, make it so adversarial and you make it so short, it's only sound bites. It sounds like the only, uh, you know, the only choices you have are either crap meat or vegetables, you know, and, and if that's the choice, <laughs> I mean, it, there's something to consider there, but that isn't the only choice. There's amazing opportunities to eat meat from animal, meat and animal, right? I hate to use the word meat and to eat animal from sources uh, that are completely different than the stuff we see on YouTube or TV or. Yeah. Yeah. What does that sustainable food system look like for you? Because I think we're being sold that a sustainable food system is to cut meat out. It's better for the environment to not eat meat. What does a sustainable food system actually look like for you? There's two ways. So again, the, the basis for a lot of the things that I do, and I wholeheartedly believe in this, um, is that we have this incredibly inefficient digestive tract. That literally the only food that humans are perfectly designed to consume is dairy from our mothers when we're infants. And then when we, then when we get weaned, we actually outgrow that ability to do that as efficiently and as safely as we can. And we need to do, do other things with the dairy. Um, but almost all the other foods that we eat. And, and if you look at pre-technology, there's a reason I'm, I'm going down this road a long way. If you look at any of the diet, the diet that we had before we invented technologies that allowed us to do things to our food before we consume them, we're looking at, um, you know, a whole bunch of insects, whole bunch of insects, and a very limited amount of wild fruits and vegetables that are hyper-seasonal, hyper-local, and only ones that had very low toxin levels so we could consume them as safely as we could possibly consume them. Very low nutrient input uh, at that time until we created these technologies. Once we started creating technologies, we started introducing all these other foods that we now see at the grocery store, we see at the farmer's markets, we see in our diets today. But what we all have to realize is we have to do something to that raw material to make it as safe and nutrient dense and bioavailable as it can possibly be. And there's two 
sort of ways that we can get a nutrient from our environment, get a raw material from our environment, and then uh, have our body make use of those nutrients. One is to take an animal that is naturally designed to consume that food that we have no business consuming, like grass. And they, like a cow eating grass has the way that it chews the grass, the four chambers in its stomach, the fact that it ferments it, all of those things allow a huge cow to eat this grass and derive incredible nutrition from it. And when we take that, you know, that animal, it turns into, I mean, it's literally a factory that's taking a, a, new, a raw material that we can get absolutely no nutrition from or have problems getting the nutrition from it and turning it into, because of, of the way they process the food, into incredibly nutrient-dense, bioavailable, nourishing meat, fat, blood, organs, all of that. And then we consume that animal, right? That's, that's the way, that's the best way to do it. The other thing that we can do is we can artificially create a technology that allows us to mimic what that animal's doing, do it outside of our body, and then consume that food. So for example, you know, cows are perfectly designed to take tough vegetable materials and turn it into organs, blood, and fat that we can consume through fermentation, or we can take that and we can ferment it ourselves on the counter and then, and then, you know, eat it as well. But, um, there, there's a loss there, right? We, when we, when we take it from the, from the animal, it is already, all you have to do is harvest that animal, cut it open, and you have access to the most nutrient dense bioavailable food ever for humans. It's already safe in almost all cases. It's already bioavailable. You don't even have to cook it. And in some cases, Cooking makes it a little bit less <laughs> nourishing for us. I was at, um, we were just doing research in Sardinia uh, about a month and a half ago, and we were we were there for a couple of reasons, but one of the uh, foods, traditional food ways we were trying to document was the creation of this um, very old uh, egg corn bread that Pliny the Elder wrote about. It's, it's that old. And it took me 10 years to find somebody that still knew how to make this bread, and they use clay and Asked to detoxify the egg corns. I was very, very interested in, in how they prepared it. And we went, we, I mean, 10 years of, of, of setting up the research, traveling across the world with my family, finding somebody, sitting there, watching them. We get all done. I was, I was so happy. I finally got to witness this and document it. And after it was all done, they said, you know, this was really famine food during World War II. And uh, we, we, we really didn't have much, you know, much food. So we ended up you know, reintroducing this ancient form of, of making these egg corns. But the reality is these egg corns are pig food. The, the better thing to do with the egg corns is let our, mm. let our pigs eat it. And then we eat the pigs. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely, absolutely right. So to me, one, to answer your question more directly, a sustainable food, the more sustainable food system that I would like to see, number one, has at its core, the most nutrient dense bioavailable nutritious food we've ever had in our diets as humans. And that's animals. And again, it's not meat, it's animals. That's number one. That the approach to those animals is a complete nose to tail approach. We, right now we, in, in America, 50 to 55% of the animals that we, by weight that we kill end up on the grocery store shelves. And that's almost always just cuts of meat. We rarely see things like marrow and blood and organs and brains in our grocery stores any longer. Um, but even though half of that animal ends up on the grocery store shelves in the form of meat, 
the most nutrient dense bioavailable parts of those animals are actually the parts that don't show there. So the, the mm -hmm. part of the, you know, the blood, the fat and the organs are incredibly nutrient dense and bioavailable more so than the meat. So uh, one of the things is if, if we start including the entire animal, that becomes very, very important on, on all levels. Uh, the second thing is things need to become more localized again, the way that they were in the past. You can, it, it is literally impossible to have, uh, milk produced the way that I want my milk produced at mm -hmm. the scale that most of the milk is being produced. It's impossible and it's unethical and it's not sustainable to produce meat at the level you know, these big CAFOs are, are, are producing meat. It doesn't make sense for the animals. It doesn't make sense for the planet. And it certainly doesn't make sense for us humans that are, are, the, are the end users of, of, of this compromised food. So localizing this again, putting putting the power back in the hands of, of families and of communities is the very, very, very first step. Now, everybody doesn't have to have chickens and have pigs and have cows. But somebody in the community does, mm -hmm. you know, makes makes a whole lot of sense. And when you're when you're putting it back at that level and spreading these things out, a lot of the the math changes, the amount of of waste you have to deal with or how you deal with it, for example, changes the amount of animals that are stuck in one. You know, all, all of these things change and uh, become very important. The other thing is. One of uh, the most important parts of, and I started this interview saying this, one of the most important things that we need for a sustainable food system is that connectiveness. We, as the um, as the end users of, of this food, have to understand what that food really means on every single level, not just from the nutritional macro uh, nutrients and micronutrient level. Or what, you know, that stuff's important, certainly. But it's not as important as what happens in our kitchens, what happens in our backyards, what happens around our hearth. Those are the very important pieces. And we can start to understand much better everything from a larger from a larger perspective when we take back control of that and put it in the hands, you know, in our own hands. So for a, a, a great example, some of the things I'm talking about here are things like, you know, if you're eating vegetables, ferment those vegetables, learn how to do it. It is the best way to start to learn about mm -hmm. how we harness wild bacteria and wild yeast to transform our food for us before we put it in our mouths. You know, just start making something like sauerkraut on your counter. If you eat cheese, you know, what, in what world does it make sense that we're putting something in our bodies every single day and have absolutely no idea how it's even made. And I'm not suggesting you become the most, you know, everybody becomes the best cheese maker in the world, even though it is possible to make better cheese in your kitchen than almost any cheese you can buy anywhere in the world. Um, but understanding how it's made, make cheese once. Mm. And then you'll walk into the, you know, that aisle in the grocery store and you'll know immediately, I'm never eating that. Maybe I can have that sometimes. And that's exactly the thing I should be buying all the time. It almost doesn't matter what the cost is, you know. Yeah. One cheese class, one pasta filata cheese class can literally empower you to understand everything in, in, in the dairy aisle in the grocery store. Um, if you're eating bread, understand how to make sourdough bread. If you're eating meat, take a butchering class. And, and, and I know for some people it's like, oh my gosh, why would I even, I don't want to, it's a responsibility. I mean, it is a, having access to animal resources meant that something died. I mean, and it's something that we should, that we, we need to understand this. We can't, we shouldn't be masking it any longer. Um, we should be talking about it. We should be embracing it. We should be understanding it. Impact. If you take instead, if you're all you're doing is buying lean chicken breast, which I don't have any uh, use for at all, but if that's what you're doing, even if all you do, then take a small step and bring in a whole chicken. You know, from a financial perspective, it makes a lot of sense. From a nutritional perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but 
you know, from a connective, you know, uh, level, bringing a whole chicken into your house completely transforms your understanding, yours and everybody in your family's understanding that this was actually something once living. We don't have any skin or bones or hair or feathers in our in our kitchens anymore. And we expect our kids to make that connection between the meat that they're eating and something that was running around at a farm. And this is one way to do it. If you bring home a whole chicken, it looks like something that might have been running around at some point. But here's my challenge. And this is this is something that we teach here at the Food Lab all the time and I think is a really valuable experience. Bring home, just bear with me because it's going to sound extreme, but it's really, it's, it's really empowering and uh, connecting. Bring home a half a pig and put it on your counter. Look, it, it's not bloody. It's, it's just leg, go to your butcher, ask him for a half of a barbecue pig, put it on the counter and take it apart. Literally, uh, as long as this is what I start every butchering class with. There are ways that you butcher in Southern Italy. There are ways you butcher in Spain. There's ways you butcher in Mexico. There's ways we butcher in the U.S. It's different than all of that. So, but the reality is there's no one way to butcher an animal. You shouldn't be scared. There's only two things you have to do. Number one, be respectful of the animal. And number two, be safe. And, and that's it. As long as you, you follow those two guidelines, anybody can do anything with, with any animal. Um, but, you know, you can take that pig apart and you can, we, we, we can get a half of a pig here for about $150 and in about three hours, I can transform it into being worth almost a thousand dollars, just just by cutting it up and processing. And I can do it whichever way that I want. But you doing, you mess it all up. You put it through a meat grinder, and you have a whole lot of ground pork sausage. I mean, you can't, you you can't, you literally can't mess it up. But by doing that, you have created that so uh, the connection that's so incredibly visceral and powerful. You understand more about that and where the pork chops are, where the ham comes from and the bacon comes from, you know, making pork, all of those things are, are incredibly, incredibly rewarding. But most importantly, and then I'll, I'll stop here because I don't mean to get on the soapbox and I'm so passionate about this. Um, most importantly, the, you know, the, the ultimate goal should be to connect directly with where that food is coming from. Right. So in some cases it could be as simple as get, you know, if you eat a lot of eggs, get some chickens and, and get the eggs. Um, if you eat a lot of vegetables, plant a garden, sure. But the act of going hunting or going fishing or clamming or crabbing or trapping, wh wh whatever it is, whatever you might have access to, that is, to me, the most powerful way to reconnect with not only where your food comes from, but also the way we've, as humans, have, have uh, acquired our food for literally millions of years. And it doesn't have to be, you know, some people would attack a statement of God, say, yeah, we can't all be hunters and gatherers for, you know, 15 million different reasons. And I'm not suggesting we do that. Do it once. Do it once a year. Do it once a season. That, you know, single act can reconnect you to the point where so many different things come into perspective. And, you know, re gives you that uh, rewarding value of food, where it comes from harvesting, processing, and, you know, understanding an animal died, doing it in a respectful way, using every bit of that animal to nourish your family. I mean, that to me is the most incredible sustainable food system possible. And it is one we can attain. And like I said, we just came back from Ireland and Europe hunting is something that is difficult for everybody who wants to access it to access. In, mo in many different countries, you have to have some sort of money or status to have access to land to be able to hunt. All right. And, and in many cases, unless you have land, you can't even get a gun 
to get a gun license. And so it's inaccessible to certain segments of the population. Not here. You know, in this country, you know, it is cross-cut socioeconomic status. We have a ton of public land and it is something we all do have access to. So I don't know <laughs> where that ends at this statement, but um, that that is to me a very powerful thing to do. And again, doing it once a year, doing it once every couple of years can reground you in a very powerful way. With the blood and the brains, do you drink the blood? Said. <laughs> blood is something that comes up so repeatedly around the world. I, I will tell you, I ate a lot of blood last week in Ireland in the form of black pudding. Um, one of my favorite foods in the world in, uh, is a certain kind of blood sausage from Spain called Mortilla de Burgos. That's a, the blood sausage of Burgos. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, the only time I will be completely honest, even though, and I'm still, I, I can talk a good game, but I'm still, um, you know, uh, I'm still operating with any modern cultural system. I grew up in the seventies and the eighties and you know, there's still so much baggage, you know, with my, with my approach to food that, um, I don't, even though I think blood is an incredibly nourishing food, the only time that I drank raw blood was when we were doing work with the, um, uh, with the Sambara warriors in Kenya. And it made it my entire, uh, out of five of us, four of the five in my family drank the blood. And I will tell you, it tasted delicious. It, it was immediately satisfying. I was satiated after just a little bit of it. I mean, I could just tell that it, it was just jam packed with goodness. Um, but for two reasons, I don't drink blood on a regular basis. One is because I don't have access to it on a regular basis. And two, I still have some of those cultural trappings of, you know, in the context being with some borough warriors in Kenya, like, of course, but sitting in my house in Churchill, Maryland is a little bit, a little bit different. A little different yeah. um, brains. I have eaten on numerous occasions and I will continue to eat. Um, oh, just, just back to the blood thing. I do. Um, we do make blood sausage on occasion and I absolutely do love it to cook with, but again, I don't have regular access, regular access to it. Okay. Okay. And brains, they're good. Brains are delicious. They're delicious. Okay. Can we dive into insects? <laughs> I read about insects in your book and how it was such an integral part of our diet ancestrally, as well as frogs and rats. And you were in an Asian market, I believe, and just the abundance of all kinds of insects. And I believe that they're starting to bring insects into our diet mm -hmm. in America. I'm in Canada. Um, and that grosses me out. I'm just going to be completely honest. I'm like, oh dear. <laughs> but what are the benefits to insects? And, and yeah. How well, let eaten? me start by saying the insects that we serve at the Modern Science Kitchen actually come from Canada. From an amazing farm called Entomo Farms in, in, in Ontario. And they organically raise crickets and mealworms for human consumption. They're, it's a fantastic company. There's others as well in Canada and the U.S., but that's the one we have a relationship with the person that owns that business. So that's why one of the reasons we, we, we use them. Insects are, are, are a big one. There's a couple reasons I included insects in the book. Uh, not that I was – there are things in the book that I think would make a huge difference if people adopted literally every day. 
know, as soon as possible. If you're going to eat bread, eat sourdough bread. If you're going to eat animals, eat the entire animal. Those sorts of things are incredibly important. If you're going to eat vegetables, look out for the ones with certain toxins, detoxify. You know, all of those things, I think, are, are I, I'm convinced are have not only been uh, standbys, you know, mainstream in our diet forever, and, and we need to take advantage of them again to achieve our optimal human health. Um, that aside, there's a couple things I included in the book because I wanted to just stretch people's minds a little bit, just sort of get them out of their comfort zone. Because if we're, if we're, what we're really after here, you know, if we can shed ourselves of all of our cultural baggage and, you know, eating Gerber baby food when we were a baby and listening to the doctors for the past 30 years and the government trying to tell us how we should be eating. And, and if what we're really trying to do here is regain the most nourishing, ethical, and sustainable diet possible, then we have to talk about all of it. Um, some of it might not make sense from a lot of different perspectives, but we have to talk about all of it. So I had a chapter on um, earth, ash, and charcoal because it was incredibly important for our ancestral diets. Um, I thought about including something like pre-mastication, which is when, you know, when babies all over the world are weaned from their mothers in traditional societies, they don't have Gerber baby food. They would actually, parents would chew the food and give it to the babies. And in addition to pre-chewing, pre-masticating the food, they're imparting valuable enzymes and all sorts of wonderful things in their bodies, creating that connection. I didn't talk about that, but I, you know, all of those things are important, but insects are important as well. Unfortunately, insects have gotten a bad rap in the past year or so. For some reason, it's the center of a, of a um, kind of artificially created polarized argument about eating meat or not eating meat. And, and I don't know how it got here. And again, a lot of the, a lot of the leaders in the carnivore world are, are regularly, and I mean almost weekly posting about how, how dare people suggest we start eating insects and, and, and all, and why are they trying to take my meat away by, you know, making me eat all these insects. And again, the reality of the solution, the, is somewhere in the middle. It is, and, and I'm certainly, I, I think insects are an incredibly nourishing and sustainable food source. I would never suggest to take away animal-based nourishment. What I would suggest is the only, it's just like with the either vegan or, you know, the, 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 uh, the vegan meat argument has been distilled down to Either you're eating vegetables or you're eating, you know, mainstream meat from a CAFO, you know, operation somewhere. And those aren't the only solutions. In the case of insects, to me, it's not either or. It's right. you know, if you're really after the most incredibly nourishing, ancestrally appropriate diet possible, then including the entire animal as well as insects in your diet is something to really, really, really consider. Insects were a food, and it isn't something new, right? Insects are, have been a food resource in our diets and our ancestors' diets well before meat made it into our diets whatsoever. And it wasn't like when meat came in that insects went away. It's insects and, and animal consumption continued for millions of years and still continue in different parts of the world today, right? We went to Thailand to work with insects on purpose because in Thailand and in in Asia in general, a lot of places, insects are an incredibly important component of the diet. In Mexico and South America, there's a lot of places where it isn't this fringe weird thing. It's, it's mainstream. And in most cases, it's not insects and no animals. It's insects and animals. The, you mentioned that market, and it's very interesting to me because um, when we went to the market in Thailand, I 
felt a connection in this market that was unlike any other market I've ever been to, but was very similar to the kind of connection I was talking about earlier that you get when you're, when you're hunting your wing. It wasn't as powerful and visceral, but it was really, really close. And I wanted to describe it in more detail, but here's a couple of things that were, that struck me. Um, and I'll tell you why I was at that particular market. One thing that struck me was there was nothing hidden. There was nothing hidden. There weren't a lot of signs because there didn't need to be signs. You went up to a stall in the market and you knew exactly what they were selling. And in many cases, it was still alive. And you you picked out what you wanted. They killed it for you. They dressed it for you and they gave it to you. Um, powerful. I mean, again, there's nothing hidden. There's one thing that's always there in our modern food system right now is that things are hidden from us. There's nothing hidden in that system. The second thing that I felt was incredibly powerful was in many cases, the person, not only did you see the person, you know, did you see the animal? Did you pick it out? Did you, you know, witness the entire process? But that same person who raised that animal, harvested that animal, prepared that animal for you was the same person who handed you the bag. And you literally, when you grab the bag from them, you know, you literally, you're touching hands. I mean, it, it is just visceral. I mean, it was powerful. I wanted to write more about that market, but remember I was writing at a time when, you know, we were still in the throes of finishing the book and learning the throes of COVID and the wet markets, um, you know, the, the whole thing about wet markets and what did the virus start? It was, was so rampant that it impacted my ability to describe all of that in detail. But um, that's why we went to that particular market. And that was one of my big takeaways, but here's something as far as insects are concerned that I took away from that market that I thought was, was really, really cool. When we went to do research in Thailand, I wanted to experience and understand better three different um, sort of contexts of eating insects. One was in a very rural area where insects were still just traditionally part of the diet. And we did. We were in Fitzanulak for that. I also, on the other extreme, I wanted to see, we went to an incredible restaurant, uh, incredible restaurant. It was called Insects in the Backyard, where this brilliant chef wasn't trying to hide insects and food. He literally, the basis for all of his dishes were insects and he was celebrating the appearance and the, and the aromas and the flavors and the textures of different insects in the dishes. Um, and, and he did a great job of it. But what was really important to me was understanding some more of that sort of mainstream um, insect consumption in an area that's been urbanized um, and, and we were in we were in Bangkok, and I wanted to see, you know what happens in a market in the middle of a city. Uh, do they still really sell insects? Are they? Are, I mean, are they there just for show because tourists are there? Are people really buying them? What are those people like? Where are they coming from? And is there sort of a socioeconomic thing here? Like, okay, insects are cheaper than than animals, so you know, are people just going and you know wishing they could get to the meat, but they're bypassing it because all they can afford are the insects, and they're buying bags of the insects and going home. And what we found was exactly the opposite. People were going to all the, you know, a lot of the people we saw buying the insects went to the produce first, got the produce they wanted, you know, had bags of produce. They'd go over to the animals parts and they get the meat that they wanted. They're literally laden with bags. They've already paid for all the food. Then they go into the insect part of the, part of the market. They're buying the insects and, you know, they, they, they go home and they're consuming, you know, they're cooking and then consuming all these insects as a, as a routine thing that's part of their daily life. They're not forced to eat the insects because they don't have enough money to buy the meat. They're actually embracing all of it still. It's traditional, you know, and the like. 
incredible. So to be honest, just like with the blood, we don't eat insects every single day. We do eat them, um, typically in the form of, of crickets, because that's what we can access very, very easily. There's a couple of recipes in the book for crickets. And, and in fact, um, one of the recipes we developed was a cr cricket you know, protein bomb or ball that we make here at the restaurant and we sell massive amounts of. It really, if anybody's thinking of of taking a step into the insect world or understanding what it is, you know, come see us and, and, and or order from us our cricket balls or the recipes in the book. Try it. It's a very easy recipe to do. Um, and it will blow your mind that it actually tastes as good as it does. And it's as nutritious as it actually is. Does it taste like meat? Does it taste like? Meat? Like, does no. it taste like a no. meat? No. And, and I'm not, and I'm not even trying to make it taste like okay. meat. Insects are, um, then that's the thing. We sort of, you know, take these this food category and 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 distill it down into into one idea. It's like, oh my gosh, bugs are over here. The reality is, then this is one one of the things that the chef at at that restaurant um, did so expertly, celebrated the diverse textures and flavors of and appearances of all these different insects. And some insects are super crunchy. Those are the ones I like better because it's sort of like eating chips or popcorn or, or something where you know we have you, you hear that crunch. You, you feel that crunch. It's something we're used to in, in other, and it's a lot of times kind of salty or whatever. We, we like that. And it, it reminds me of other things in my diet. There's other insects that are kind of mushy. I don't do so well with those, even though my dream bucket list is to eat a witchetty grub in, um, in Australia, which is you know about the size of your finger. And it's supposed to taste like um, it's, it, it's soft. It's supposed to have the texture of like pasta but it's supposed to taste like buttered popcorn. Can't wait. But in, in other areas, I've eaten some insects that are kind of soft and leathery. And I, I don't, I don't do kind of like eating an earthworm sort of thing. I don't, I don't do so well uh, with those, but what I want people to do, and, and I'm not suggesting, look, I think you can have an incredibly nourishing diet, live your best life and not include insects in them. But what I, the reason I wrote that chapter is I wanted people to understand that this is this was an important food resource for our ancestors. It's still important to a lot of people around the world today, and it's a viable option for including a very sustainable, nourishing mm. food into our diets. Yeah, I think the pushback. I know the pushback for me around it and seeing a lot of it online, like on social media, on Instagram, is that it's the all. It's all insects, no meat. So I like the approach of it's not all or nothing. And I believe Bill Gates is behind it in some way. So that kind of just sends a lot of red flags for a lot of people. Uh, he, he, may, he very well may be. I, I don't know. But I will tell you, we've been involved with it well before Bill Gates probably even knew that it, it was a thing. And I guarantee you that our Australopithecine ancestors three and a half million years ago had no idea who Bill Gates was. I <laughs> heavily upon insects. Uh, It's not all or nothing, but here, here's another just very quick, maybe just two, two quick statements that maybe can put a little bit of it in perspective as well. One thing is, and, it's, and this is a sort of a caution, if you're allergic to shellfish, there's a very high chance that you're allergic to insects or many different insects as well. And the reason is because the the same chitin that's in the exoskeleton of things like crabs, right? And lobster are the same, in many cases, the same thing that's in the exoskeleton of insects. And if you really think closely and look at them closely, 
there's not much of a visual difference between a cockroach and a lobster. One's a lot bigger than the other. One lives in the water, one lives in your kitchen, but they look so much the same. I mean, if you really think about it, we've normalized eating lobsters and eating crabs and those sorts of things, but the reality is they're insects in the sea. They're, they're big blown up insects in, in the sea. And it wasn't very long ago that lobsters were being served to prisoners in New England because nobody else considered it a real viable food resource. And now you can go to some of the best restaurants in the world and eat lobster. Mm -hmm. So it, it really is just a contextual um, cultural thing where we have this wall up, you know, this is food, this isn't food. You know, this is something I can eat. This is something I shouldn't ever be eating. And as soon as you can step away from that and say, oh, maybe I sh maybe this isn't as bad as a thing. Maybe, maybe I'm just not used to something like this. I mean, it's, it, it's worth stepping out of your comfort zone and, and trying it if that's the direction that, that you want to go. But the, again, the, the reason that I wrote that chapter and included those sorts of things in blood and, or, or earth and ash and charcoal and descriptions about blood is not that I'm suggesting that um, we should all be eating these things on a regular basis, even though I, you know, some of these things, if we did, I, I think we'd, we possibly could be better off for it. The reason is because I don't want us to get if we're comparing the diets that we have today, the diet that you eat, the diet that I eat compared to most, um, you know, the standard American diet, we should be, my gosh, we've made it. We're doing this amazing job. We're at the ultimate level of the kind of approach to food we, we can possibly have. And the reality is we're not, right? There's so much more out there that we haven't possibly even considered that it's worth just kind of, you know, pushing on the edges of those boxes, thinking outside of the box to, you know, okay, now that we've gotten to this place, what is a possible next step? Yeah. Rats. This is my last question about weird food. Have you eaten a rat? Rats? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we ate, um, when I did the show for National Geographic, the great human race, when we were in Uganda, we, um, there was a, a forest fire and some animals had got trapped in the forest fire. And one of the animals that got trapped in there was something called a cane rat. And, I, it was cooked in the fire on its own, but so I did eat that. As far as rats are concerned, it's the only rat uh, muskrats. I've eaten muskrats, but um, I've eaten mice and small animals like that as well. Oh, okay, okay. I'll try the insects <laughs> the first. You're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with the insects. I think I think I've actually eaten them in Hawaii or somewhere, or and I lived in Australia. I'm sure I had some insects in Australia. And it was... Yeah, you had to have, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and you know what? Not to gross people out, but sort of to gross people out. There's not a person in this world, vegan or not, that has any massive amounts of insects. I mean, if you go to the USDA and FDA websites and look at the amount of insect and insect parts that are allowed in food, and your mind would be blown. I mean, it literally says, I don't know the exact numbers, but like, you know... 46 insect parts per half a cup of ketchup is, you know, still legal or so, you know, th those are the kind of things that are in it. It'll blow your mind. Hello, loves. Just interrupting the show for one quick moment to let you all know about a product that I absolutely love and that I am an affiliate for. As you all know, I have been going through quite the healing journey these past six or so months and insomnia 
was part of that. And my go-to for insomnia is pearl powder. And it is also amazing. It's been used in Chinese medicine for thousands and thousands of years for our skin and bones. It's full of minerals and it is so nourishing. So, so nourishing. And so my favorite company to purchase my pearl powder, my pearl of the sea is from Wild Holistic. I love their small batch, cozy, comfy business style. And it is absolutely a pleasure to purchase their products. And my go-tos are the earth drops full of vulvic acid and humic acid and pearl of the sea and the healing body, which is turmeric, ginger, and holy basil full of anti-inflammatory goodness. And so there is a link for Wild Holistic in the show notes. And if you use discount code LISA, capital L, capital I, capital S, capital A, all capitals, use discount code LISA, you will receive a 10% discount on checkout. And I am an affiliate of the company because I use their product and I fully stand by it. And so by purchasing through my link, you are supporting the podcast. Part of the proceeds go to me. And I am so, 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 so grateful. So yeah, back to the show. Fermentation processes, canning, is that part of a fermentation process? Canning oh, I'm so glad you said that. No. And no? I hate to oh. I hate to be um I hate to say this because so many people are sort of in that homesteading mind space and everybody's canning now. And, you know, it was a big thing during COVID too. Um, The good thing about canning is that you are taking control of some sort of food processing step in your own home and and you're taking food from the farmer's market from your own garden and you're canning it, you're keeping it doing all of that is absolutely wonderful. But from a nutritional perspective, you're not maximizing what you can do to that food. In fact, you're 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 making it it worse. The term pickling, when and when we think about making, for many of us, think about making pickles. We're taking a cucumber, we get some vinegar, we get some sugar, we heat it up, and we put it in. It. That's not pickling. Pickling actually refers to historically to, to fermenting. When we ferment, right, what we're doing is we're allowing, in, in almost all cases, the wild bacteria that's in on the vegetables, in the air, on tables, on surfaces to um, come alive, eat the sugars and the starches that are in the vegetables. In, in the case of vegetable ferments, it produces lactic acid as a byproduct. There's also a lot of chemical and physical reactions taking place that start to pre-digest the food. There's often an increase of nutrients Depending on the vegetable and the toxin, it's also a great way to detoxify certain vegetables, uh, prepares them for human consumption, and it also produces incredibly uh, pleasant aromas, flavors, and textures in our food, um, and also makes them safer from not only a toxin perspective, but from a pathogenic perspective, and also allows them to store for uh, a lot longer. There's all incredible benefits of fermentation. The reason that it uh, makes it makes the food safer from a storage perspective and from a pathogenic perspective is as the bacteria eat the sugars and the starches, uh, it creates lactic acid, and that means it becomes more acidic. So the pH drops. So on a on a um, 
And in your pH scale, seven is neutral. As your, as your numbers get higher, it becomes more basic or um, alkaline. And as your numbers drop, as your numbers get lower than seven, it becomes more acidic. When you start getting in the, you know, if seven is neutral, like water, you start getting into the, the fours, for example, it becomes a very safe environment that's uh, hostile to pathogenic you know, pathogens um, and very uh, welcoming to the bacteria, the good bacteria, the kind that populate our guts. So, uh, and that's the other benefit of, of fermented foods is you're at, when, you, when you eat them, you're, you're filling your bodies with all sorts of amazing, wonderful, you know, live probiotics. So that's how the fermentation part works. When we can, um, we're doing two things often. When we, when we make pickles, like artificial pickles, um, like most people, if you, if you Google how to make a pickle, you know, and you're flasking pickles and all that, what they do is they take vinegar. And the reason you put the vinegar in there is because you immediately drop that pH into that safe zone by the introduction of the, of the vinegar. But you're not doing any of those other wonderful things. You're not pre-digesting it. You're not creating all that wonderful microflora and the good bacteria that populate your gut. You're doing none of those things. You're only dropping the, um, the pH artificially by adding that vinegar. The second problem is with canning itself, you, you could make the argument that when you, when you can something, at the moment you're finished canning it, from a, a pathogen perspective, it's the safest the food can possibly be. Not from a nutritional perspective or any of that, but from a pathogenic perspective, um, it's the safest it could possibly be. But that canning process doesn't discriminate between good and bad um, microorganisms. It kills everything. So you, you create this like, the, the way I like to explain it is, it's like there's two armies on a field, right, battling one another. And then you drop a bomb in the middle of that field and you kill both armies, the good army and the bad army. Everybody's dead. And now that field is, you know, is safe from, 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 from the armies. But the bad army you know, could have reinforcements hiding in the woods and they come out of that field and there's nothing fighting those reinforcements. It's the same thing when you can something or you pasteurize something or you use antibiotics. You just you've, you've, you've leveled that plant. You've killed everything off good and bad. And for a second, as far as pathogens are concerned, it's incredibly safe. But as soon as something breaks down in that system and a pathogen can find its way in, there's nothing stopping it. There's no good bacteria that's helping with anything. There's nothing fighting it off. It's a blank slate and, you know, all sorts of all bad things can happen. So we don't can anything whatsoever. Any, any vegetable processing that we do um, involves fermentation. And it's a it's it's an incredible way to again connect with your food on a you know, on a very ancestral way, but also to start to understand how these millions and trillions of microorganisms that's on your countertops, on your skin, on your food can be harnessed to work in concert with you to create incredibly nourishing food. And that's where I usually send people first. If you want to start, you know, want take take your first step, make sauerkraut. Like just make sauerkraut. It's incredibly easy. We have. I have information in my book about it. If anybody's looking for another really, really, really good resource, um, I would send them to a book called Wild Fermentation by Sandor Katz. I think it's the most accessible, um, empowering, just basics of home fermentation you can possibly find. Okay. I've been canning like a wild woman these past couple of weeks. <laughs> well, and my reasoning, I live on the West Coast of Canada. Mm-hmm. And there's farmer farmers markets everywhere. We're, we're in a location that's only accessible by ferry, but it is on the mainland. Um, 
so I'm like, I'm going to get all the produce from the farm stands, from the local farms, can it, and then I don't have to buy much from the grocery store through the winter because a lot of our produce comes from the States, this whole appeal thing, you know, the mm-hmm. appeal thing. So that, that's been kind of my process behind it and it's been fun and all that kind of stuff. So with like cucumbers, beets, carrots, all that, can you ferment them? It just every one of them, hundred percent. Oh, really? Okay. This is how basic it is. And, I, and I'm so glad you brought this up. So again, please understand, I am not dissing canning. You haven't there's, killed there's my wonderful canning things dream. Of, what's that? <laughs> you haven't killed my canning dream. Okay. <laughs> because again, <laughs> the fact that you can preserve local produce, you can connect with it. You can, you can do all these wonderful, that that's all amazing. But if you're looking to maximize the nutrients and the flavors and the textures and the aromas of these foods, then fermentation is, is, is a much better option. So uh, let's take cucumbers, for example, to me, the magic number in, in vegetable ferments is 2%. There's, excuse me, there's two primary ways to take vegetables and, and ferment them. So number one, you, you always have to put this kind of fermentation is an anaerobic fermentation, means it happens in the absence of oxygen. So you always have to submerge it under some sort of a liquid. Uh, so that's number one. And then two ways to do that is either to do it like you would do pickles, where you put the cucumbers themselves in a brine, that you know water you've already prepared or like in the turn in the form of sauerkraut you're shredding that vegetable up and you're with the salt you're drawing the moisture out of the vegetable and uh, submerging it under its own liquid okay so th- those are the two major ways of doing it um with cucumbers for example and, and it's, in both cases it's a two percent brine and this is where um there's some there's some discrepancy in the fermenting world but i want to make it very easy for everybody here Number one, you don't ferment in metal unless it's stainless steel. Uh, ideally, you're fermenting in ceramic or you're fermenting in glass. Those are the two major places to ferment. Typically as well, you don't want to ferment, especially a long ferment in plastic. If you do ferment in plastic at all, you want to make sure it's incredibly high-grade restaurant-level plastic. That's not going to leach all sorts of nasty things out. But for most people at home, a big mason jar is, is, is good enough, uh, or a big glass jar. They're, they're easy to get. Not the weight of the vessel, the weight of everything inside of that vessel. You, you figure out what that weight is. You multiply it by 2% and that's how much salt you add. It literally is that simple. So the easiest way to ferment a cucumber is you take a, a jar, you put, you know, you weigh the jars, so you can account for the weight of the jar. Fill it with as many cucumbers as you want. Put in enough water so they're submerged. You weigh the combination of water and cucumbers together, multiply it by 2%, add that much salt, and literally that's all you have to do. Then you can start playing with, you're going to add coriander and you're going to add dill or whatever else to flavor the pickles, but that's all you have to do. Sit it on the counter. In an ideal situation, we like to ferment uh, at about 65 degrees Fahrenheit, but it will ferment in a much larger range than that. But when we ferment here, we have actually refrigerator we have set up for 60, between 62 to 65 degrees, we ferment. Uh, sauerkraut, the only thing you have to do is take the cabbage, shred it, put it, pack it, I'm sorry, shred it, weigh it, multiply it by 2%, add that much salt, massage all the salt in, pack it super tight into a jar. Because the salt draws the moisture out, the, the sauerkraut is sitting under the level of the liquid that's come out of it. 
and you ferment. You can add things like juniper berries and bay leaves and onions and apple slices, whatever you want, but that's the basis of, of, of how to do it. And that's it. And you at about 65 degrees, most of our ferments take about 10 days. They're completely done. We ferment carrot sticks. Uh, we cut up the carrot sticks. We pack them into a jar super tight We uh, so they hold each other down. We fill it with water, weigh the contents of that jar, the combination of the carrots and the water together, add 2% salt and let it ferment. And they become this incredible live probiotic snack for our kids. That also, by the way, the other cool thing about fermentation is if you're on sort of a ketogenic or low carb diet, the food for the bacteria or is the sugars that's inside of the vegetables. So a fermented carrot stick has less sugar in it than the carrot itself does. And it's full of probiotics. It tastes better. It stores longer. And um, it's already partially digested. So our bodies work less hard to get the nutrients from it. I'm going to try that. I'm going to give it a go. I'll have my canning and fermenting going on side in the kitchen. <laughs> and well, I, I mean, I've done it a ton of canning already. So I'll, I'll give the fermenting a go. How long does the fermented food last for? That's a great question. So I have eaten. So once you ferment, this is the one drawback, unless you have a cellar of the fermenting uh, versus the canning. It, fermenting works great again in the mid sixties. It works fine at 70, it works fine at 80. I fermented at 90 degrees. And again, this is all Fahrenheit. But once you get to the flavor and the texture that you want, the I, you know, where it is, and this depends on you know your own preference. The way to sort of lock in that flavor and texture in a row is to stick it in the refrigerator. So it does take some refrigerator space. Uh, if you have a cool basement, you can ferment it for a, it can stay down there for a lot longer as well. But it, um, I have eaten sauerkraut that I've made and then stuck in the refrigerator that is two years old, and it's changed a little bit, but it's absolutely still safe. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, um, can we dive into raw milk absolutely. a little bit? I'm in Canada. It's completely illegal. Yeah, it's here. very illegal in Canada. Yeah, we find a way though. We do find it. <laughs> but yeah, raw milk and um, the benefits of that. It's awesome. So, one thing I think we all need to understand is that. Humans have been consuming dairy from other animals for at least 8,000 to 9,000 years, probably a lot longer, but that's all that we have, you know, evidence for. Uh, we started domesticating animals that are uh, easy to milk and derive milk from about 10,000 years ago. We have um, cheese making equipment that we found that date to about 8,000 years ago. So we've been dealing with dairy from other animals for a long time. Uh, certainly not millions of years, uh, but for a very long time. The thing with milk that I think is very important for us to understand is number one, I mentioned this earlier, but it is the single food that I'm convinced that we as mammals are perfectly designed to consume. But we are perfectly designed to consume that dairy when we're infants and still nursing from our mothers. When we get weaned, just like other animals, we start to suppress or lose the ability to safely and efficiently derive, you know, consume that milk. That said, that doesn't mean, and that's usually the, the, the end of it. And that's the argument for most anti-milk people to say, oh, well, you shouldn't be drinking milk any longer because, you know, we're not designed to consume. Many of us are not designed to consume milk when we're 30 or 40 or 50 years old. And that's, we're not, 
but we're also not designed to consume grains right off of a stalk or kidney beans out of a field without the input of some sort of technology to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. The cool thing about dairy is, in my mind, what we need to do to make that dairy as safe and nourishing as it can possibly be is just to mimic what we did naturally as infant humans, do it outside of our bodies before we consume it. So this is what happens when we consume milk from, this is us and other animals, other mammals consume milk from our mothers. Number one, this is, these are all very important pieces. Number one, the milk coming out of our mothers is A, at body temperature, and B, teeming with live bacteria. It's already in the process of fermenting. So when we drink that milk, the milk is completely alive. It's at body temperature, which is very important because the bacteria that operate, the bacteria that is responsible for dealing with that milk properly operate best at that temperature. And it's not, and it's no, um, uh, it, it makes sense that it does because it's through millions of years of evolution that it, that, that it works that way. So we consume this already fermenting milk into our bodies as, as infants, same thing with a cow, same thing with a rat, same thing with a whale and consume it. And our body produces several different enzymes that um, start to break down that milk lipase, which breaks down the lipids right, in the milk, mm. um, lactase, which breaks down the sugars, the lactose in the milk. A lot of other things are going on. But what's also important is when it hits our stomach, all mammals produce some sort of a um, protease enzyme that denatures the proteins and does something to them, takes them out of their natural state, and it coagulates the milk. And the reason that that happens is because if all we're doing is drinking liquid, Liquids pass through our digestive tract way too long for the food to properly break down and for our bodies to absorb the nutrients from. This goes right through our bodies. So what nature has figured out with mammals is that if we, if this enzyme uh, is associated with that milk, it denatures the proteins and turns it into sort of a semi-solid, sort of like a jello-like substance. And now that it's uh, more solid, two things can happen. One is that our, our stomachs, in addition to chemically breaking it down, can physically work on it to break it down. But most importantly, it slows it down and allows that milk to ferment longer, to break mm -hmm. down longer. And when the, the fully broken down milk goes into our small intestines, it sits there a little bit longer so the nutrients can get absorbed through the intestinal walls. So that's a beautiful thing. But when we get weaned off of our mothers, we start, and, and it's not just humans, in general, mammals start to suppress the ability to do all of those things that, that I mentioned. And the fact that uh, we're, we're lactose intolerant as humans isn't a weird thing. In fact, I know many of us, and I, I grew up, <laughs> the story I tell usually is I grew up in a, in a school, uh, in a community where when I went to elementary school, almost everybody I went to elementary school from was from a uh, European descent which makes a difference. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And I knew one kid that was lactose intolerant. I knew one kid in my entire world. Now I'm sure there were more, but I only knew of one. So to me growing up, uh, being lactose intolerant was weird. Like there was one kid that was lactose intolerant. All the rest of us are lactose, you know, are fine with lactose. Um, it turns out that that's not true. You know, over 60% of adult humans right now today in this world are lactose intolerant. The weird thing is that some of us are lactose tolerant. Now, my little microcosm that I grew up in, in the area that I grew up, uh, those numbers were switched because there's two populations in the world, um, some in Europe and uh, one in Europe and well, 
a group of populations. Some of them are from Europe and some of them are from Northern Africa, where for a variety of different reasons, mostly having to do with a strong reliance on dairy and the diet for thousands of years, there were <coughs> excuse me, independent genetic mutations that um, created lactose tolerance into adulthood, which means they continued as adults to, con to produce lactase. And this is really, really cool. <coughs> so to me, the people that I was around were descendants of, of, of this, you know, some of these populations. But on the other hand, somewhere like, um, you know, groups like Native Americans never had dairy prehistorically in their diets, or if they did, it was at a very low level mm. and never created that genetic mutation to continue to produce lactase as adults. So in Native American populations, almost, you know, 100% Native American heritage is almost always 100% lactose intolerance, whereas somewhere like Ireland has almost 100% lactose tolerance. So what does that mean? <clears throat> does that mean we shouldn't consume dairy as adults? No, we should be consuming dairy in a way that mimics what we did as, as, as infants. So a great, a really cool thing about fermentation with dairy is when you ferment dairy, the lactobacillus bacteria eat the lactose and produce lactic acid. So if you ferment the dairy and make traditional cheeses or make yogurts or make kefir or a number of other fermented products, if you do it for real and it's natural, the final product has almost no lactose or no lactose whatsoever. When we make yogurt here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, we ferment it for 24 hours and the resulting product has no naturally has no lactose in it whatsoever. So we've mimicked what's happening in our bodies, you know, from, from outside of our bodies. Mm -hmm. Raw dairy is an incredible food. Raw fermented dairy is even better. So what comes up for you on why it's illegal? Why have they made raw milk illegal? There's a, there's a number of different reasons, thing, historical things that have, uh, you know, all happened that have culminated in the fact that raw milk is so illegal at the moment. But one of the things that stands out as uh, really prompting this push towards pasteurization and this fear of, um, uh, hold, on, hold on one second, and this fear of, um, uh, of raw dairy happened in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So to set the stage, you know, during the Civil War, we created, uh, because of, partially because of the, the, the war effort, we created massive railways all over the country. We, had, we really took a step, a huge leap in, uh, in transportation. You know, roads were created, rail, railways were created, and all, all the, so we could transport food all over the place. What we didn't have a handle on at the time was um, refrigeration. It was really, really sketchy. It impacted a lot on uh, a lot of the ways we started handling animals in general, but really impacted milk as well. The other thing that was happening at this time was you know, cities were getting larger and larger. And through the entrepreneurial spirit, a lot of dairy farmers team, teamed up with distilleries and set up shop together outside of some of these cities. And what you had was, you know, for some reason, well, I know exactly why, they believed that they, had the, they created the symbiotic relationship that worked really well. You had um, distilleries that were distilling corn or rye into whiskey, and they had this leftover byproduct was the spent grains. Well, we could feed the spent grains to cows. And then you had dairy farmers next door feeding all these spent grains to cows. And there's a number of different issues with that. One of them, obviously, is 
that cows aren't designed to eat grains. We all know this. But what's even worse is that even though we don't think about alcohol production as a way of getting nutrients out of food, it does, right? It, if I gave you a handful of barley and said, raw barley and said, eat this, you'd actually make yourself very sick and you wouldn't get, there's probably more anti-nutrients in it than nutrients in it at all. And you wouldn't get any nutrients from it. You'd be worse off because of eating a handful of barley. But if I turn that barley into beer and gave you that beer, then, you know, I know there's a psychological effect to it, but you actually get nutrients from that beer as well. Nutrients you'd never get from eating raw barley. So you can take that barley and turn it into bread, take that barley and turn it into beer. And that's one way of accessing some of the nutrients in it, which also means you've taken the nutrients out of the grains. So here we have cows that are getting fed these grains that they shouldn't be eating, but these grains are, grains are like completely devoid of nutrition as well, because all the nutrition is going into the whiskey and these cows are just incredibly ill and sick. The reports that I've read on the conditions are, you know, these cows are standing knee deep in their own filth. There's dead cows next to live cows or milking the cows in the midst of all this. And the milk that's coming out of these sick cows smells funny, looks funny. You know, the, the colors are all funny. In fact, the, the dairy industry at the time was doing everything that it could to make the milk look white again. So they were adding all sorts of things like talc and chalk and even animal brains to make it look white. So you have this incredibly disgusting milk. And then now it's getting shipped into the cities. Again, you don't have a, a good, um, good control over refrigeration. The milk is of really, really poor quality. And it's going into infants that are uh, uh, really, really, really young. So you have a lot of women entering the workforce at the time, which is a wonderful thing. But the, the byproduct of that is kids are getting weaned off their mothers a lot earlier. You don't have breast pumps and you know, ways of freezing the milk. So you have younger, really, really, really young kids that are turning to this really disgusting cow's milk at a really young age. And babies were getting sick and dying left and right. So there was a decision to be made. You either had the opportunity, you know, one thing that can be done is you could transform the entire dairy industry and make sure that the only, they were only producing incredible milk. Or, you know, that takes a lot of time. It takes a heck of a lot of money. Or you boil the milk. You pasteurize the milk. So obviously they pasteurize the milk. What... I think everybody needs to understand what the raw dairy argument is pasteurization does not make bad milk good. Pasteurization makes bad milk not lethal. <laughs> it makes bad milk not kill you, but it doesn't make the quality of that milk any better. So what it's actually done over the past 150 years is it's allowed you know, this, this dairy industry to grow to mega proportions with you know, standards that are held incredibly low because they all know even if something's wrong with the milk, we'll pasteurize it and it's going to kill off all the bad stuff. But the quality of the milk coming out, you know, not only is a pasteurization process problematic, but it also allows an industry to continue that should never be continuing. At the same time, you have incredible dairy farmers, small dairy farmers that are doing an incredible job. They, you know, they have small dairies. They treat the cows well. The cows are grass fed. They know every cow by name. They know the whole you know, lineage of the cows going back three or four generations. The milk that's coming out of these cows is amazing. And they're not allowed to sell it. They're just not allowed to sell it because of whatever the laws are. I did hear recently the Western Price Foundation put something out. It said 46 of the 50 states now have a legal raw milk option. You know, it's not that you can go to the store and buy raw milk in, in, in all cases, but 
you know, here in Maryland, it's really difficult. The only thing that we allow is uh, sales pet milk, right? So you can, you can buy milk that's labeled pet milk. Um, but high quality, raw, fermented dairy to me is an incredible food. I, I don't like to use the word superfood in any form, but it is very, very close, very, very close to that. Bad, but the other thing I, I do, you know, since we have an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into these conversations than just the talking points, bad quality raw milk is actually still a dangerous thing. Um, so we do, if you're in an area where you have access to raw milk, that's not regulated. And I'm not one for regulating food in, in any form. But as far as the raw milk is concerned, one of the nice things about um, the states where it's legal for human consumption is that it's tested, right? It's tested. So you have these farmers that are held to standards that uh, repeatedly, you know, they, they're getting this repeated testing. In the areas where it's not allowed for direct human consumption, then you don't have any of those standards. There's nobody else holding them to these standards. So it's up to you as the consumer to understand what it is you're actually purchasing and what it is you're feeding yourself and your family. So what my suggestion is, is if you're going after, you know, if that's the only access you have to raw dairy, then you need to go to the farm. You need to meet the farmers. You need to see the cows. You need to see the conditions, see what they're being fed, find out how, you know, what the milking conditions are like. Look at all of those things because it is up to you, which is a wonderful thing. It is up to you to make your own decision um, and don't just rely upon you know, going to the store and picking up the pet milk and not seeing yeah. any of that because that can absolutely get dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's helpful to really be sovereign is to look at all these different elements and where your food's actually coming from or your milk. Um, yeah. I'm, it's like a whole underground system here in Canada. So <laughs> that's great. So I've, I've heard you've met you. Canada has decriminalized hard drugs, but you still go to prison for selling raw milk. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also taking our, um, well, I mean, just to go on a little rant about Canada, we can't see news on social media anymore. So it's all, yeah, there's a legislation, legislation passed and now they're attacking our supplements where It'll be really hard to get uh, herbal supplements in uh, in the stores. You know, I have consumed raw milk literally all over the world, and some of the conditions these—I mean, I, I, these cows are getting milked, and it's sitting there, and we're in ninety-degree weather in, Ken in Kenya, and there's flies laying on the milk, and it's 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 going into a bowl that held milk for the past seven years, and it's never been washed, and. You know, all the animals are just roaming. Never have I or my family gotten sick. Not once from any of those situations. Yeah. And again, you have people with a direct connection to their animals that are, you know, and, and they're holding themselves to standards because they are feeding themselves and their families with this milk that's coming out of these animals. Now, and they're not afraid of fermentation. They're not afraid, you know, not, not, it, it, they, they embrace it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a necessity. And this is how they're getting their food. And we have never had, in fact, I've had massive food poisoning over a dozen times in my life. And every single time has been in a modern world situation, like from a restaurant or a hotel. And it's never been from one of these other, other situations. And I mean, I've eaten some strange things in some strange places and not once have I gotten sick. Yeah. And 
in Europe, like Ireland, England, is raw milk legal there? I don't know what England's situation is right now. Um, it is legal with, with some, and, and, and I could have told you exactly, I can tell you exactly what was going on in Ireland uh, when we lived there right before COVID, but I don't know exactly what the situation is here. Raw milk cheeses are, are legal, and I think with certain conditions, raw milk is legal. But I don't, I don't know exactly at the moment. I do know you can go to places in Eastern Europe and you can get raw milk out of a vending machine. And in other places in the world to put you in handcuffs. I mean, it's it, it's so incredibly strange. And the crazy thing about raw milk is it's taken on this sort of uh, personality that it's like the poster child for food sovereignty and food freedom. And yeah. I, I think it, it actually should be at some level because it's such a basic thing that's been in our diets for literally thousands of years. That is, to me, if you look at it, like it's just, it's white and it's pure. And anyway, it speaks of all these wonderful things that we're all that we're all after in our, in our lives and, and freedom to be able to nourish our families. And yet it has the stigma associated with it that is absolutely absurd. But again, that you, you want to learn about dairy. If you want to learn about dairy in a way that is probably one of the most empowering ways to do it is literally make cheese. Just make cheese one time. And you will, so here's a perfect example. We here uh, at Maryland is very, very, very strict with, um, with uh, milk laws and regulations and the size that we are now and the infrastructure we have, we make all of our own cheese. We make all of our cream cheese, our, our pasta filata cheeses for pizza, all of our sandwich cheeses. We make our own fermented butter. We do all of those things, but we are only allowed because of a couple of reasons, only allowed to bring in already pasteurized milk. There's one dairy on the Eastern shore of Maryland where we are that, that we know of at least that produces milk that we can actually make cheese from because they use a very low temperature pasteurization process. It's gentle enough that it hasn't completely messed up the proteins that it'll still set a curd and we can make cheese from it. It's the only one. And if whether you agree with me that, you know, firm raw fermented dairy is the best way to safest and most nourishing way to consume dairy or not, you know, that's obviously up, up to you. But you can't argue with the fact that that is the way that we digested the milk in the most efficient and nourishing way possible and the safest way possible when we were infants. And if, you can, if you're consuming a milk that you cannot put through that process, right? it's just physically impossible because something's so screwed up with it, then I really question whether or not that should ever touch our lips. And most of the milk you get at the grocery store, I don't care whether it says, you know, it's, it's whole milk and it's in the whatever. It, most of the milk in the grocery store, you cannot make cheese from. You cannot ferment properly. Um, and then it, it, that I, I don't think it's something we should be consuming. Yeah. Yeah. What's been your biggest lesson along the way? The biggest and most rewarding, and I'm just repeating something I'd mentioned earlier, my biggest and most rewarding lesson along the way is that most of the questions that I've had my entire life about food and diet and health and sustainability and all of the big questions that most of us have about food, I can answer myself when I empower myself by connecting with my food learning how to properly prepare food and, you know, 
going through that process of removing links from my food chain. And it was mind blowing because I have hired nutritionists. I have talked to doctors. I have tried all these different diets. I've read massive amounts of books. And, and a lot of that is very informative for good and for bad. It's very, very, very informative. But when I started cooking entirely from scratch, uh, through foraging, through hunting, through um, all of that, most of the questions that I've asked have been answered just through that process. So one of the things that I also like to say is, you know, there are billions of dollars being spent in the marketing advertising world. Uh, so when you walk in, if you walk into a grocery store, not knowing the answers to a lot of those things, you're walking in defenseless. Like you are literally getting bombarded by billions of dollars of work that are, you know, shelf placement, labeling, advertising, the way coupons are put out, all of that, all of that impacts social media, all of those things impact what food you choose to buy and how you're trying to nourish yourself and your family. And if you take a step back and learn how the foods that you eat every single day are actually produced, you know, whether or not you decide to make them entirely yourself from scratch at your home or not, just if you, if you learn those processes, you can walk into the grocery store you know, a, a completely different person. You are educated, you are empowered, you understand so much about food that the advertising, you, you know, it, it, it's useless on you. It's like, it's like you can rip that curtain away and just see food for what it is. And when you get to that place, 90% of the stuff in the grocery store, you'll never look at as food any longer. And, you know, again, you just you know, figure out what, and one of the cool things about it is that several things happen as, as, sort of unintended, positive, unintended consequences. Number one, you're nourishing yourself in, in the best way possible by, by, you know, again, if you don't necessarily have to cook all these things from scratch yourself, but if you understand how it's done, um, you have the ability to do that if you decide to, but if you don't, you go to the grocery store and not only are you buying the most nourishing food, truly nourishing food possible, but you're also spending your money on that food, which means you're supporting the small producers that are actually making that food. You're, you're consciously choosing to make a difference by putting the, you know, putting that, you know, the money down, that money's going into, into their hands. And those are that over time, that's a very powerful thing to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much for this conversation. Are there any offerings that you have that you want to share? Where can people get your book? Do you do online awesome. courses or? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, and, and you need to come and visit us next day, next time yeah. you're on the East Coast. We'd yeah, love to have That would you. be amazing. There's a couple of ways to find out about the work that we're doing and, and take advantage of, of some of the things that we offer. So number one, um, I would point anybody to my book, Eat Like a Human. It was a lifetime project. And literally what I did was I took um, the way that I learned through archaeology, anthropology, all of it to, uh, to learn how to feed, nourish my family and put that information down so that you can do the same. And it's full of recipes. Um, and it also turned into the basis for our restaurant, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. So uh, the book Eat Like a Human is a great resource. Uh, also the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. If uh, we're located on the Eastern shore of Maryland, we're only um, about an hour from DC, an hour and a half from Philadelphia and a couple hours from New York City. So we're very easy to get to. Um, so we put all of the, everything we talked about, we put into practice and, uh, we, we have a restaurant here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. And you can find out information about that at modernstoneagekitchen.com or follow Modern Stone Age Kitchen at, at Modern Stone Age Kitchen. Um, the, 
book, any of our classes, any of our workshops, any of our presentations, our blog, all of that is accessible on our website at Eat Like a Human or on social media at Dr. Bill Schindler. So at Dr. Bill Schindler. Amazing. I'll put the, the links in the show notes. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for an episode of the Phoenix Rising podcast. Please like, share, download, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. And I will see you next week for another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast. Sending so much love.